0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Enchanting Economics in New Mexico. This podcast is a production of Beaver, the recognized expert in socioeconomic data for the state of New Mexico. I'm your host, Rayanne McKernan, and with us as always is Sarun Lytel. Today, we're going to be talking about something a little different, uh, still economy related, still labor culture related, um, but we're, we've got a special guest today. Joining us is Jason Scott-Smith. He is a history professor at UNM. He's the graduate studies director of the history department. Did I get that right, Jason?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to this talk. Me too. So, as I said, this episode is a little bit different from previous ones, but the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is because something occurred to me when I was thinking about Beaver's economic forecast. I don't know if you know this, but we do a quarterly forecast and our team has built this with 375 specific equations that deal specifically with historical and statistical relationships for New Mexico economic variables. So thinking about how we use historical data, I'm wondering if history can play another role in this conversation. Can we use it to understand our economy and our culture today? Um, Can we use it to predict our future?
1: Well that is a great question and kind of an evergreen question um and it's something that historians and others have thought about for um for a very long time i mean mark twain our famous american author was rumored to have said at some point that history does not repeat itself but sometimes it does rhyme there's a historian of medieval russia that kind of goes to the other extreme in a perverse way he said history teaches nothing It only punishes us for not learning its lessons. So if history could predict the future in a kind of one-to-one, 100% of the time sort of way, you know, we clearly would have been doing this for some time, but we're not able to do that. So it's still, the question remains, how is history useful? And I would say that its usefulness lies in offering something that's an exceedingly short supply in our fast-paced present, and that is perspective. You know, think about, for a moment, how the MBA curriculum, for example, is structured in many business schools. They use the case study method that originated at the Harvard Business School. And what do these cases do? These cases are fundamentally historical. You know, how do I understand an aspect of the economy, something like a managerial dilemma, a problem that faces its company, a team of executives, you know, they have imperfect information in these cases require that MBA students act as a historian. They have to make a decision in the face of uncertainty based on what they know about the past and the information they have in the present. And if you think about these situations as invariably historical, the more that we can deepen our perspective, the more that history can be useful or helpful in figuring out what we might do in our present moment. Another example of, of sort of applied history, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, Ernest May, historian Richard Neustadt, they created a course that had these students at the Kennedy School in public policy, how to make choices in political situations based on a review of choices over the course of history. You know, let's study what Kennedy and his advisors did during the Cuban Missile Crisis not to understand what we should do in a future crisis, but to understand how they weighed the different variables, how they weighed the trade-offs, how they made decisions in the face of uncertainty. And so I think what history can do in turbulent economic times is give us a sense of perspective. And you know, you think about some of the statistical information we have about our economy, these things are historically produced. You know, economists came up with the idea of national income accounting, measuring GDP. How did they come up with this? Why did they come up with this? They came up with this during the Great Depression. How to make sense of an economy, a global system of capitalism that's gone off the rails. We're we're like a blind person, blindfolded in the dark, walking backward into the future. We need information. We need a way to measure the output of an economy. And so that's how you know sort of these economic statistics came into being. They have a history of their own.
0: And, and looking at our economy and the culture of labor today, it feels to me at least like we are in turmoil. In your opinion, are you surprised by that? Or did you see this coming? And by that, what I mean is, you know, with there being the pandemic going on or, or if it was any other major global events, has there usually been a direct effect or is it, What's happening now in 2020 just a
1: coincidence? Great question. I mean, for me, I'm a a, a fan of the economist Joseph Schumpeter, this Austrian economist who taught at Harvard University for many years and is the author of the the landmark mid-century work entitled Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And for Schumpeter, the definition of capitalism that he offered is one that's exceedingly useful and I think speaks directly to this sense of turmoil. And for Schumpeter is that he defined capitalism as a, as a perennial gale of creative destruction, something that the, the capitalist economy was ceaselessly churning, creating new ways of doing business, sweeping aside older ways of doing business, and with, at times, immense social costs. You know, think about corporate downsizing, Think about the ways that companies try to become leaner and more efficient with their labor costs, outsourcing. I I tell my students, you know, if you want to rent a movie, you can go to Blockbuster Video. Oh, wait, you cannot go to Blockbuster Video. That business model has been destroyed by Netflix and iTunes. You know, it's been swept away. So you know, we definitely are in a moment of extreme turmoil and exceedingly high unemployment. But we might step back and and kind of ask, how wide is this circle of, of we, and who is in turmoil and who has been in turmoil? The era of what we think of as stability in the American economy, you know, think of something like, quote unquote, lifetime employment at a firm like IBM in the 1950s and 1960s. That's actually a very short lived historical moment. And you might say historically, turmoil and dislocation and long periods of unemployment for various aspects of the workforce has been the default, has been the baseline, not the exception. And we have in a moment like this, or in a moment like the great depression of the 1930s or the years immediately following the financial crisis in 2008, we have this turmoil affecting more of us, but that turmoil has always been there for many Americans and many people. And, um, It can be more accentuated and more shared at certain moments than others but i think it's important to think of it as as more often than not the default rather than the exception
0: i'm curious do you feel like other countries are feeling the same turmoil we are or is it just u.s specific do you think
1: i think nations different nations are feeling this turmoil in different ways and you can look at for example the different choices that they make in structuring their own capitalist economies, you know, think about Germany or Japan for a moment, you know, I mean, Germany, it's home to world leading capitalist firms that have been in existence for many decades. And you know, this is this is not a social socialist economy. It's a capitalist economy, but with a lot of social welfare support for workers. So. You know, the kind of dislocation that workforces are experiencing in terms of the pandemic is much different in a nation like Germany or France than it is in a nation like the United States.
0: I'm really showing my ignorance. I didn't realize that if you weren't, if you were capitalist, that there were different ways about doing it. I assumed if you were a capitalist society, you all ran the same way. So interesting, good to know. (laughs)
1: No, I mean, you you can think about, I mean, you know, take something like the auto industry. You know, the auto industry exists here in the United States, Ford, General Motors. um, It exists in a major way in Germany with BMW and Volkswagen, the Japanese firms like Toyota. These are all world leading firms competing globally in, in kind of the iconic industry of the 20th century. You know, the internal combustion engine, the automobile, the truck, you know, this is capitalist competition on a global scale in a key industry, and you can kind of extrapolate outwards from that to all sorts of industries, tech, pharmaceuticals, you name it.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Let's turn more specifically uh, to labor culture, especially the culture that we're living in today. For as long as I can remember, you know, a traditional work week for a full-time employee has been five days a week, eight hours a day. Yet Saroon uh, showed me an interesting article that he found on NPR that was actually published back in November about Microsoft Japan testing out four day work weeks and resulting in three day weekends last summer. All of that happening while they were still getting their normal five day paycheck. And so to sum up the article, uh, the result the company said was a productivity boost of 40%. Then I heard last week <laughs> that a business in Western New York, which is where I grew up actually, um, is also switching to four day work weeks. And then I saw an NBC News piece just a couple days ago saying four day day work weeks might be just what our economy needs right now. What got this movement started? Because I feel blindsided by it. And you know, think it will pick up momentum in the U.S. And could it be something that we see relatively soon here in New Mexico?
1: That's a, it's a terrific question and it's a fascinating subject. You know, I'm honestly not sure. I like to tell my students that, that, you know, that they have the difficult job because they have to go out into the world and deal with the future and I can stay at the university and continue to predict the past, which is my job as a historian. Which is It's nice because I'm usually right when that happens. It, you know, it's, it's, it's uncertain. I think one of the things we can say, though, about this move towards a shortened work week, remote working, you know, that these are experiments that different firms and and public agencies are are being forced to experiment with, you know, in no small measure because of the environment created by the pandemic. And just historically, you know, it's fascinating, the 40-hour work week, eight hours a day, five days a week, has its own relatively short history. You know, uh, I'll loop back to the auto industry again. You know, it's 1926 when Ford adopts this five-day, 40-hour workweek structure. And previously, workers for Ford worked a six-day week. And auto workers, after the, after going to that five-day, 40-hour workweek, auto workers were not paid overtime when they had to work over, you know, over that time until the United Auto Workers bargained for it. And how did they bargain for it? It took the Flint sit-down strike of 1936-37 to make that happen, you know, this tiny auto workers union sat down, took control of General Motors' plants in Flint, Michigan, and you might ask yourself, why didn't they go on strike at Ford? The reason, and this is the culture of labor relations and the auto industry in the 1930s, 1920s, Ford had the largest private stockpile of dynamite and ammunition in the nation. Right, Ford was ready to crush any strike by force. So the UAW was was smart enough to strike GM, the firm that had fewer fewer guns. Um, wow. So they they go on strike. They sit down. They take control of of um, Flint's plants. You know, they stay there for 44, 45 days, and and force GM to come to the bargaining table. They negotiate an agreement. It's the basis for a kind of auto worker auto company contracts going forward in the late 1930s into the 1940s and 50s. The 1949 contract with GM and the auto workers was nicknamed the Treaty of Detroit because GM had bought, finally had secured labor peace and stability by offering workers benefits and cost of living increases and all sorts of inducements to, um, you know, to partner with them in the production of cars. All of which is a long way of saying, you know, the this, this thing that we take as a baseline is a given. The 40 hour work week um, with overtime has a very short history and it's something that was deeply contested and fought for um, and resisted by firms and fought for by workers. So I think in looking at what might happen with a work week going forward, it's, it's going to be a site of contestation between workers and employers who can be trusted to work remotely, how much do you get paid, how much support can you expect from your employer to to work remotely? These are all kind of open questions and they're questions about, fundamentally, about power.
0: Well, speaking of working remotely, what is your opinion on the future of that? Can it be judged as a whole or does it need to be addressed based on the industry? You know, for example, Mm -hmm. the employees of Beaver, we can work anywhere, whenever, as long as we have internet. And for that reason, among others, we're not in any rush to return to campus, but do you feel the same way? I mean, I can't imagine what it's like trying to be an educator at any level at this time.
1: No, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge to be sure. I mean, I think it's something where clearly, I mean, and certainly we are in a state where our governor has taken a, a prudent and science-based approach to Um, um, looking after public health that you know I mean I think about my colleagues who are older you know the kind of intellectual capital that we have in in the UNM faculty of people who are in their 60s and beyond those people should not be placed in front of of, actively circulating potential spreaders super spreaders of environment in enclosed classrooms even with a mask I mean this, this seems like you know not a good idea so I think you know for certainly and then, then you've got any range of educators who are not older, but are you know they go home, they're taking care of older relatives, younger kids. There's a lot about this virus we don't know. It's, it's a complicated set of trade-offs, and that's putting it mildly. You know, I think in terms of uh, remote work, it's clearly better suited to some industries and occupations and economic sectors than it is to others. I mean, some work and some kinds of education are fundamentally face-to-face and not remote. Um, you know, I, I would prefer if I need to go under the surgical knife to not be operated on by a doctor who is trained purely by remote learning. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. So you know, I mean, there are these things. Um, yeah. But you know, if I I need to communicate with an accountant about my taxes, you know, like let's 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 do a phone call, let's do a Zoom meeting, let's do it. It's a clearly it's a sector by sector thing, but it is fascinating. I mean, looking back to these international comparisons, you can do what percentage of the American economy was deemed, and I alert you to that passive voice there, was deemed essential and remained open and working during you know the march to the present, and which sectors were not deemed essential and could stay home or should stay home or got to stay home. Those are questions that put certain workers and occupations on the front lines and insulate and remove a large portion of workers um, from that health risk.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I really don't know the answer. In other countries, were the same industries that we considered essential considered essential there?
1: i mean i think in some nations i mean i know a little bit about ireland having lived and worked there a couple of years ago you know it was a much more thoroughgoing shutdown and stay-at-home order and you know if you were um, on the older end of the spectrum you were ordered to as they put it to cocoon in your home and you could you know major grocery stores tried to reserve delivery slots um, so you know, the elderly could purchase groceries and have them delivered to their home. And, you know, this sort of um, idea that you could just go to the grocery store and wait in line and go in, like, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe there should be widespread grocery delivery. That's just one anecdotal example that I can offer. But, you know, there are definitely other ones.
0: Yeah. And also touching back a little bit on, on the last question. I'm curious what you foresee happening to the demographics of our labor force now. You you mentioned the elderly; are they going to be pushed out into early retirement, or are the struggling parents who are trying to wrap their heads around working remotely and raising children, and you know, in a couple weeks, even helping them with their schooling from home? What does that mean for us? You know, I mean, in my in my own experience. It's slightly easier this summer because I can work and my kids are entertaining themselves, unfortunately, with electronics, but hey, you know, I'm getting work done. <laughs> but I'm, 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 dre- I'm really scared, I'm dreading August. Like, am I gonna have to choose between my career and my children? You know, my middle school, he's gonna be okay in theory because he can get on a computer and do his online learning himself. But my first grader? Not
1: so much. No, I mean, this is this is something that I think is a widely shared um, concern and a and, um, uh, uh, subject of, of, it should be, of great concern to us all. I mean, the kind of work-life balance and life balance that people have stro- striven for, worked for, um, it's really thrown into question. You know, I think one thing you can see in all of this is, I think what this, this dilemma shows us is the kind of, very thin set of social ties that supported our economy and society before the pandemic. We are so on the edge that this can force so many women out of the workforce that it can cause the elderly to choose to retire rather than face and risk their lives in continuing to go to work. This speaks very directly to the sense of social solidarity, and kind of uh, social, you know, societal supports that we have that enable people to do things like work, take care of their kids, pay their rent, pay their mortgage, buy groceries. It's a very thin social safety net surrounding all of us. And I think the pandemic and these sorts of dilemmas and situations highlight that and underscore it.
0: I'm also curious regarding demographics is your opinion on if there could possibly any be any other major changes. Could it be essential for every worker, no matter what industry they're in, to have a college degree?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think that's something where that's a trend we've been observing for quite some time. The returns, economic returns to people with a college degree in terms of wages over their working life that's something that a trend we've observed for some time and I think that trend may be accelerated can continue more strongly I mean at the same time there are occupations you know I think of skilled trades plumbers electricians kinds of manual labor movers you know you can't outsource that over the internet someone has to come and move your stuff um, if you hire if you need to move and you want to hire a moving firm you know there are certain occupations that will continue to you know, if you will, be resistant to the notion of a college degree. But it's clear that I think from past trends that this is something that we're likely to see continue.
0: Sarun, is there anything else you want to ask?
1: Uh, I wanted to add something on the college degree part. I think the, the capitalistic nature of the economy will do something. Say there are like people in the labor market that you need a college degree, but nobody in the industry has a college degree. What are you going to do? We're probably going to do an on-job training and hire people who are like, uh, have those skills to pick up a new skill and then hire those and just train them on the job. I think that a college degree would increasingly become less relevant because of all the uh, training that you can do. I mean, even right now, for most programmers, you don't even need a college student. You can go to a boot camp or on-the-job mm-hmm. job training, and you can mm-hmm. make a really good wage that way. No, indeed. And, you know, you can certainly point to, you know, I mean, I, I do not want either of my kids to come to me with this example, but to say, like, you know, but dad, Bill Gates dropped out and he did all right for himself. Um, You know, I mean, you certainly can you know, find that, but you know, uh, odds are it's, it's, you're probably better served to to finish that degree or get that degree, but there are certainly exceptions. And and I think in a, a capitalist system that underscores and celebrates entrepreneurial activity, you know, the tendency for people to maybe look at themselves and say like, hey, I'm gonna bet on myself, I'm smart. I don't need to do that distribution requirement in you know sociology i'll just simply start coding Um, sure you know at the same time you could make the case that for a liberal arts education it's never been more relevant or more desired by certain occupations and certain firms i mean for some time the consultancy firm McKinsey was was and has been looking for um you know, people with liberal arts degrees, with PhDs and disciplines like history even, because these people are smart and have the training to think about different situations in different ways. And, you know, McKinsey can teach them how to use Excel or, you know, make a chart or understand statistics. So, you know, it it, it can cut both ways, I think. That's a great question.
0: So if you were a betting man, is there there any going back to the economy and the labor culture before this pandemic, or are we definitely seeing a change that's going to stick around for the future?
1: Well, I I can, I'm allowed, I think, as a historian to use at least one cliche a day. I could say time will tell. Um, (laughs) But, you know, more seriously, I think um, we're seeing some changes that I think will persist for some time. And, and will the, will things change back or evolve in a different direction? I think that's an open question, but for the moment, I think we're seeing some pretty impressive alterations in the fabric of how people do business, how people work. Um, I mean just something as simple as as business travel, you know. I think as annoying as the Zoom experience is, you know, it's the, the pandemic has underscored a lot of these meetings are not necessary. And the ones that are necessary, you can do a lot of those over Zoom or over a phone call. You know, you don't need to go to Cincinnati or wherever you might need to go. Um, yeah. So, the future of business travel—that—that that is, oh, I'd say, up in the air. But I, I really, sh- <laughs> I really should not. Uh, it's an open question.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, well. That's all I have, Jason. Um, I, I really can't thank you enough for joining us. I, I learned a lot from you. No,
1: well, thanks thanks for the invitation. Great to talk to you.
0: I, I really appreciate it. And so that wraps it up for us here at Enchanting Economics in New Mexico. Don't forget to check us out at Bieber. That's B-B-E-R dot U-N-M dot E-D-U or on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under at U-N-M Bieber. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care.